True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to the first minisode in a long while. In minisodes, I discuss cases that are in the media at the moment as well as related topics. Before we get into today's mini-sode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Vera Kamalo, Tracy Atkinson, Luane van der Mava, and Irma Stradom for your support on Patreon, as well as Patricia Dealey for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by PrintCrowd. There are several new discount codes coming soon, so keep an ear and an eye out for those two. You can also help to support me as an individual creator, by following my Facebook page, checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Jeroben van Wyk. Anyone know who that is? What if I said Daniel Smith? Or the Clava Monster? Now that sounds a bit more familiar, doesn't it? Then what if I threw in words like occult, rituals, serial killer, and let's not forget the best-selling headline maker of all time, Satanism. Now that sounds like a story you want to hear, doesn't it? Yeah. So let me tell you who Jeroben van Veik is, without these sensational tags. A 13-year-old boy lives with his mother in Clava. The town he lives in is in the Western Cape. It's a small town built almost solely around agriculture, like many of the small Western Cape towns I've spoken about on the podcast before. Clava is also a place where, if you don't own a farm or work on one, or if you're lucky, own a business that is a necessary service, like a bottle store, you're unemployed and probably destitute. If you're a child in Clava, you're growing up in beautiful surroundings. But you've also got to find something to pass the time. So on Wednesday, the 2nd of February, 13-year-old Jerobin and a friend are walking the streets of Clava town. There's a tree in a resident's garden bearing mangoes. The boys salivate over the plump fruit and decide, like millions of children and adults throughout history, that there's no harm in picking a few. The boys have just picked one or two, 
when they hear the homeowners screaming at them. They run. He gives chase. If some news reports are to be believed, the homeowner gets in his car and drives after the boys. Jerobin's friend hides in a dustbin, but he never sees Jerobin again. In fact, no one sees Jerobin van Veek alive again. His mother, Teresa, cuts a sad image as she goes to the police station for the first time. She's frightfully thin, her face covered with the compulsory mask, and her voice is almost a whisper as she asks the burly policeman behind the desk how she can go about placing a missing persons report for her son. Perhaps the policeman can't hear her the first time and barks at her to speak up. She does and he eventually makes out what she's saying. He asks the child's age, and when he was last seen. But he's not writing anything down. Teresa can't understand why he's not making notes. How will they fill out the report? Teresa van Veek will walk away from the Clava police station that day, no further along in her quest to find her son than when she arrived. Your boy is a teenager. He's just been naughty. He'll come home soon. Wait longer. Teresa will return to that police station again after that. Only slightly more interest will be shown in her plight on that occasion. She'll provide police with the only photograph she has of her child. Her phone was damaged, so she only has a photo taken by his school. In it, Jerobin wears a mask. He holds a sign bearing the word Ons, which is Afrikaans for us. His school principal will later explain that the shot is a still from a Mother's Day video the pupils had made the previous year. They will also provide older photos of Jerobin, one of which will be used in a Missing Children South Africa poster that will be briefly distributed. Jerobin has been missing for a few days, when we start to see the first headlines. Remains found in a drain at Clava residence, believed to be missing boy. And then, the floodgates opened. Suddenly we were drowning in information, and not all of it was factual. In fact, most of it was not. Daniel Smith, the owner of the house where the mango tree stood, was arrested. The remains found on his property had been significantly dismembered. At first he denied any knowledge of Jerobin's whereabouts or why there would be any human remains in his drain. Then he allegedly confessed. He had killed Jerobin. And there were more, he claimed. There were more bodies in sea points. He'd been part of a cult from his own teenage years, who taught him to kill without being caught. Smith's defence attorney made a public statement to cameras outside the courthouse. The community needed to pray, she said. A spiritual war was at play. Her client was not mentally ill, but he was spiritually ill, allegedly. He was a victim of a brainwashing cult, or a satanic something or other. She wasn't sure what the difference was. Her words, by the way. I watched in rapt horror. 
but not for the reason that many were horrified. It was very clear what the attorney was doing, at least to me. Divide and distract. What better way to prepare a mitigation of sentence than to slather all the wrongdoing in spiritual source? Even better, let's make it a satanic source. That's really going to get people going. And it did. I cannot make very many factual statements about the murder of Jeroboam van Veik in this minisode, because right now, everything's up in the air. The accused is yet to plead, he has to go to trial, and everything, absolutely everything, has yet to be proven. Except one thing. Jeroboam is still dead. Jeroboam is never coming back. And his murder is now the subject of an investigation and ensuing trial. If you Google the term, the ethics of true crime, you'll find for the most part articles written about what are termed highbrow true crime podcasts and programs that, according to the journalists, seek to elevate the true crime genre to something it is not, so that the podcasters and producers can feel better about themselves for profiting off the stories of victims. And yes, that is something that does happen. It is one element of true crime that sits on that dodgy fine line. But does that mean it shouldn't exist? Or that we shouldn't consume it? I don't want to approach this topic with the claim that I know exactly what ethical true crime content or reporting should look like. I'm learning all the time. When you know better, you do better. When I started this podcast, I wanted it to be victim-focused. And I feel it is. So this is the one thing that I always return to when weighing up whether coverage is ethical, to me, or not. Does it serve the victim? Serving the victim means a lot of different things. Sometimes it means justice. Sometimes it means telling their story in a way that puts the bulk of the focus back on them. And there are always going to be things that come up against that. I'm never going to get it right 100% of the time, and neither are my co-creators in the genre. But I think that perhaps the ethical baseline of the medical profession works here too. First, do no harm. And to that, I'll add to the victims. Because true crime coverage is always going to negatively portray someone, usually the perpetrator, and maybe even their family. And that's the trade-off. So let's apply this to how we've been talking about Jeroboam's murder in the press and on social media. A boy went missing in Clava. This statement serves the victim. His mother struggled to report her son missing. Knowing this serves the victim, and perhaps future victims too. A man was arrested for his brutal murder. Serves the victim. He will appear in court on charges of murder and possibly kidnapping. Also, serves the victim. He was in a cult. He might be a serial killer. He had weird letters on his house. 
We're all being hunted by secret cult killers. Burn down his house. He was a farmer. Oh, wait, no, he was a train driver. Here's his picture. Oops, sorry, that was some innocent guy with the same name's picture. Jerobin who? His name was Jerobin. That's all we need to know for right now. The other stuff, the fluff, the distractions, the add-ons, the sensation, is just taking us all away from the point. A 13-year-old boy lost his life. He picked a few mangoes, and he was savagely murdered. And even that mention of him picking mangoes in someone else's property is a distraction. It's a form of victim-blaming. Because Jerobin shouldn't have been doing that. He shouldn't have been a child who wanted a piece of fruit and took it because he was with a friend, and, well, the fruit was there. Is that stealing? Yes, I suppose it is. But it also has nothing to do with Jerobin's murder. Jerobin was killed because someone believed that their anger was worth more than his life. Victim-blaming is another aspect of ethical true crime that desperately needs addressing. When we think about victim-blaming, we mostly think about people blaming women who've been raped for being in dodgy situations or wearing what they deem inappropriate. Of course, the ridiculousness of those insinuations alone are mind-blowing. Rape does not have a preferred location nor does it have anything to do with what the victim is wearing. But that's not all victim-blaming is. Victim-blaming is linking a crime to the action of the victim. It's saying that a 13-year-old was murdered after he stole a piece of fruit. Victim-blaming is telling someone that their cell phone was stolen because they were talking on it in public. And then there's the second, less noticeable cousin of victim-blaming, and that's victim-minimization. You got mugged? Well, you do live in a crime-ridden area, so what did you expect? Someone broke into your house? Well, why did you leave the window open? It all makes us feel better. It makes us feel like there's an explanation, and that it will never happen to us because we don't steal fruit, and we don't talk on our phones in public places, and the area we live in is pretty decent. So if you're looking to create or consume true crime content in an ethical manner, then yes, victim blaming or minimization needs to be the first thing we refuse to allow. What happens, though, when the victim is the focus, and it still goes wrong? Sarah Turney is an American true crime podcaster. But more importantly, she's the sister of missing Alyssa Turney. Alyssa is Sarah's sister, who disappeared 20 years ago, and Sarah has never given up trying to bring the man she believes to be responsible for her disappearance to justice. And for Sarah, that has not been an easy road, because that man is not a stranger. It's her father. Sarah has her own podcast called Voices for Justice, where she discusses cases that don't get the media attention they deserve. She also recently spoke to the sister of another missing person, 
Maura Murray disappeared in 2004, and Maura's sister talks to Sarah about a side of the true crime world we don't always consider. What happens when the victim is focused on so much that awareness suddenly becomes a distraction from the case itself? When, as in Maura's case, every small thing she did is discussed in deep detail on public forums and is thrust forward as a reason for her disappearance. When I have the privilege of speaking with family members of victims on the podcast, I'm always intensely aware of one thing. They don't actually want to be speaking with me. They're friendly, they're lovely, and they're grateful for the opportunity to tell their loved one's story. But I'm the last person in the world they actually want to talk to. And the story they're telling is one they don't ever want to have to tell again. But they have no choice. Well, they do. There's always a choice, I guess. They could go back home and not talk about it. But that would make it less likely they'd get justice or have the full story known. So they're stuck between the most horrible events in their lives and a true crime podcaster. And then we still tell them that they should be grateful. I hear you asking, but can't we just watch and listen to the stuff we enjoy without having all of this ethical stuff weighing on us? Well, of course you can. I'm not asking you to impale yourself on the sword of contrition because you enjoy true crime. Heck, if you didn't enjoy true crime, I'd still be selling packaging, wouldn't I? So, thanks for that. But every now and then, I would like you to think about the tough stuff. Just for a minute. Think before you comment. Think before you share. First, do no harm. For me as a creator... The minutes I no longer see any tangible proof that my content is serving the victims in some way, I will chuck my microphone in the bin, delete all my episodes, and walk away. Probably go sell packaging again or something. Until then, I will continue to produce true crime content that aligns as closely as possible with what I think the genre should uphold. His name is Jerobin. I do hope you enjoyed your mini-sode for the week. If you did, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media, We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.